There's a place I like to walk to nearby when I don't have time to walk the whole three-mile loop. It's a farm, <clears throat> and it's up on a hill, so it has a, it has a bit of a view, and it's usually breezy up there. <clears throat> and this time of year I go there, I love to go and see the swallows that are flying around because they nest in one of the buildings <coughs> excuse me, at the farm. And uh, there's really nothing finer than a barn swallow. There are lots of things that are just as fine, <laughs> but I can't think of anything finer than a barn swallow. And uh, sometimes I worry I'll go and they won't be there. They won't, they won't have come back. We have to be very careful, us humans, how we're living. Outside the back of where I'm living, staying now, there's a little porch and I stand out there and there's a shagbark hickory out there at the edge of the, of the little lawn, the start of the woods. A shagbark hickory is as fine as a barn swallow. <laughs> And chipmunks are just as fine. And those little orange salamanders in the woods. There's a lot of things that are just as good as a barn swallow. If I took a survey of all of you here in the hall and asked you why you came to this retreat, what brought you to meditation, what motivates you to <clears throat> undertake a practice like this? I'd probably get a real range of answers. You know, maybe you have a motivation to find more ease and balance in your life. Maybe a friend or relative suggested it would be good for us, convinced us to come, and we might be ready to strangle them. <laughs> what were you thinking? You know, there may have been some difficulty or a traumatic event in our life. We're looking for some ease, some peace with the turmoils that life sometimes brings us. We might have been inspired by someone we met or something we read. We're just curious, you know, what is meditation if we're new? Maybe one or two of you wound up here by accident, thinking you were going to a health spa. <laughs> Wondering, wondering, still trying to find the hot tub. <laughs> Maybe feeling just a bit disappointed in that regard. Uh, it's possible. <laughs> I guess that would be the uh, more deluded time. <laughs> uh, anyway. But I think most of us would say that we are at least somewhat motivated by a sense for uh, a longing, a sense of longing for for meaning and for some deeper connection to life in some way. And we may have been, we may have touched some sense of dissatisfaction with the conventional ways of, of seeing things or the conventional offerings that we find as the pathway to happiness or to success. We may see that there are some flaws in the usual strategies questioning whether those conventional offerings will ever bring us lasting happiness. And these conventional values that make up so much of our world are based on having and getting in the great part, at least. We measure our worth in many ways by all, all that we have, all that we've gotten. And this is often our strategy for finding happiness. And this attitude, it often operates somewhat unconsciously, I think, in our lives. It's reflected in the way we use language, though. You know, we have, have all our possessions. We have a car. We have a house. <clears throat> all of the rest of that stuff. We have a body. We have a mind. We have knowledge. And we have our educational degrees. 
<clears throat> we can wind up defining ourselves in this way by all that we have, all that we've gotten. But this way of valuing ourselves, valuing our life is, in a way it's fraught with peril, you could say, and it can lead to an undercurrent of, of unease and anxiety in our lives that might be under the surface. We might not feel it that strongly, but it operates there because we're eventually gonna be parted from everything that we have. At least it's gonna get old and lose its sheen and at some point it'll be gone, and then what do we have? What are we left with then? And if we measure our happiness and our sense of self-worth in terms of stuff we've managed to acquire or experience we might have, then we're faced with this endless task because whatever we might be able to find in the way of happiness in this way, it, it fades pretty quickly. It doesn't last very long. So there's a lot of restlessness that's inherent in this way of living because we're always looking for the next thing, the next thing to do, the next thing to get. You know, it's on to the next thing. Someone gave me recently a cartoon. It showed someone in a store holding the latest and greatest computer gadget. And and they're asking the clerk, you know, they're about to check out, but they're holding it and say, one last question, will it make me happy? <laughs> and you know, it's silly and it's a funny cartoon, but, but there's a way that we, we kind of are, it's how we're kind of operating, you know, we're, we're hoping that this one will do the trick, whatever it might be. And if, you know, I, if we ask the question in the hall, you know, does this, this way of living really lead to happiness? Few of us would actually say yes, but then it's worth looking at how we spend our time and what we actually turn to in our life when we're searching for meaning. It's worth asking the question, is there more than this endless pursuit? <clears throat> When I was in high school, longer ago than I care to think sometimes, <laughs> it's getting longer ago by the day, there was a book that came out that was quite popular and uh, I'm sure many of you read it or have heard of it. It's called The Teachings of Don Juan by Carlos Castaneda. And that was, uh, it was my Bible at that time, you could say. It was a very important book for me that and a couple of others that came out uh, by him at that time. And I'm gonna read one passage that I, I still remember from those days that really touched me very deeply and profoundly. So this is Don Juan speaking to his student, Carlos. He said, before you embark on any path, ask the question, does this path have a heart? If the answer is no, you will know it and then you must choose another path. The trouble is nobody asks the question. And when you finally realize that you've taken a path without a heart, the path is ready to kill you. At that point, very few of us can stop to deliberate and leave the path. A path without a heart is never really enjoyable. You have to work hard even to take it. On the other hand, a path with heart is easy it does not make you work at liking it. <clears throat> For me, there is only the traveling on paths that have a heart, on any path that may have a heart. There I travel, and the only worthwhile challenge for me is to traverse its full length. And there I travel, looking, looking breathlessly. And I remember at that time, you know, those teen years are so intense anyway, but I remember wanting so badly to feel something of that in my life, to feel that I could maybe find something, a path with heart like this, and then to be walking with this breathless looking, this sense of awe and wonder that might be there in a path like that. And I had this strong intuition that it was possible Something told me that this was possible. 
but none of the paths that were being offered to me at that time by, by my parents, by society, felt like they were offering any real heart. And I had this clear sense that there had to be more to life, more to the world than the version of reality that was being handed to me and more than the conventional offerings that were supposed to lead to happiness and feelings of success and fulfillment. I didn't know where to look and sometimes it was a feeling of real desperation in that. And so maybe some of us have come to this retreat in part because we're looking for, for a path with heart in some way. And maybe some of us are here because we think we might have found one. There's a word in Pali that I like a lot. It's samwega. It's usually translated as spiritual urgency. And you could say that this quality, samvega, samvega, this quality of spiritual urgency is what might drive us to seek a path with heart. It's a quality of, of mind, of heart, that makes us want to use our time well, to make the best use of our time. And so we examine our life from this perspective, you know, what, what really matters, what's really worth doing. I'm gonna read this lovely poem by Mary Oliver. I'm sure some of you know it. It's called The Summer Day. It speaks to this. Who made the world? Who made the swan and the black bear? Who made the grasshopper? This grasshopper, I mean, the one who has flung herself out of the grass, the one who's eating sugar out of my hand who is moving her jaws back and forth instead of up and down, who is gazing around with her enormous and complicated eyes. Now she lifts her pale forearms and thoroughly washes her face. Now she snaps her wings open and floats away. I don't know exactly what a prayer is. I do know how to pay attention, how to fall down into the grass, how to kneel in the grass, how to be idle and blessed, how to stroll through the fields, which is what I have been doing all day. Tell me, what else should I have done? Doesn't everything die at last and too soon? Tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? So I think most of us here who would come to a retreat like this have some sense of, of urgency, of spiritual urgency. We might not think of it that way. And maybe the word urgency is too strong, but a feeling of longing in this regard. We might not use that kind of language, but we have some quality, some connection to this quality of heart or we wouldn't still be here. You know, it's a big commitment to come to a retreat like this something not many people would even consider doing, spending time this way. But this question is worth revisiting, I think, regularly in our lives. What is it that's worth doing? What do I plan to do with this wild and precious life? As I've grown older, I, I've noticed that the passage of time seems to have sped up. Maybe some of you have noticed this. And the years go by like the snap of a finger, it seems. And we turn around, another one has gone by. And where does the time go? And of course, the perception of time is not fixed. And one meditation period can seem like an eternity. Often does. Ring the bell. <laughs> and then a year goes by, and it seems like it took less time than that 45 minute sitting period. There's a, a teaching in a collection called the Anguttara Nikaya, um, a collection of fairly short suttas and teachings. 
And in this one, it's a rare case where the Buddha is quoting another teacher. He usually didn't do that. Um, this was someone named Araka, who he quoted. So he liked, liked what this guy said. And we're just a part of it. <clears throat> Araka said, short is the life of human beings, limited and brief. This one should wisely understand. One should do good and live a pure life for none who is born can escape death. And then he continues with this list of beautiful similes. He says, just as a dewdrop on the tip of a blade of grass will quickly vanish at sunrise and will not last long. Even so, a human life is like a dewdrop and will not last long. And just as when rain falls from the sky in thick drops and a bubble appearing on the surface of water will vanish and not last long. And just as a line drawn on water with a stick vanishes and does not last long, even so a human life is like this. It will not last long. So this is one way that we connect to this quality of samvega, of spiritual urgency, by touching our own mortality very directly, connecting to the truth of life's brevity, its fragility, but not in a morbid way. We touch the beauty and the preciousness of life. And we want to use our lives well. We want to spend our time well. And Rebecca spoke about this last night, but I think it's worth revisiting a bit. I'm gonna read another, uh, something else from the teachings of Don Juan. Again, this is Don Juan speaking to Carlos. He said, death is our eternal companion. It is always to our left at an arm's length. An immense amount of pettiness is dropped if your death makes a gesture to you or if you catch a glimpse of it or if you just have the feeling that your companion is there watching you. The issue of our death is never pressed far enough. Death is the only wise advisor that we have. Your death will tell you that nothing really matters outside its touch. One of us here has to change and fast. One of us here has to learn again that death is the hunter and that it is always to one's left. One of us here has to ask death's advice and drop the cursed pettiness that belongs to those that live their lives as if death will never tap them. Think of your death now. It is at arm's length and it may tap you at any moment. So you really have no time for crappy thoughts and moods. None of us have time for that. Well, those are pretty strong words. So sorry to hit you with them, but they point to something really important, an important truth, is that we really don't have any idea how much longer we have to live. There's no guarantees. We're not actually guaranteed the next breath. And we don't really like to think about this very often. And our culture tends to condition in, in us a, a fear of death. You know, we tend to do everything possible to keep it out of our consciousness, trying to avoid this subject. And we see life as something that's happening now and death as something that will happen down the road, hopefully down a very long road. And we focus our energy on getting and having and acquiring all the things I spoke about earlier, possessions and knowledge and experiences, all of the things that we use to define ourselves and to enhance our sense of who we are. And this life, this momentum of this way of living can shield us from the fundamental realities of aging, of sickness, of death. But the truth is that when death does come, it will take all of our acquisitions, including whatever sense of self we might have cobbled together. It's not waiting for us at the end of the road. It's our constant companion and walking along with us our whole life, you could say, the way Don Juan expressed it. We might not investigate, might not mind investigating 
impermanence in the world around us. But contemplations like this are hit kind of close to home. And we might feel, well, life is hard enough. Let's not dwell on morbid thoughts. And if we're young, we might feel that this kind of contemplation will rob us of something. You know, we see our whole life waiting, unfolding ahead of us. And we fear we'll be robbing ourselves of some kind of vitality or some sense of possibility. But the point of this reflection is not to make us feel bad or to create in us a sense of resignation or powerlessness in the face of the inevitable. And actually, if we undertake these kinds of reflection, we find that the opposite proves to be true. Because if we're living with a low-level, unacknowledged fear of death, then if we bring this to the surface, bring these fears to the surface, we can begin to undo some of our conditioning around them. We can begin to see that these fears are impermanent, that they're empty of any self, any core, any inherent reality. We can start to let them go by bringing them to the surface of awareness and they no longer weigh on us and we feel lighter, we feel more ease. And so we can touch the truth of these things in a deep way that's actually freeing and uplifting. And in the core, one of the core teachings of the Buddha, he said that it's our attachments, all that we cling to, especially our sense of self that leads to suffering, that is the cause of suffering in our lives. And if we live with the understanding that death will eventually part us from all of our attachments, including our sense of self, from anything that we hold on to, we might be able to start letting go of all of that now, and this will save us from a lot of suffering down the road. <clears throat> Last month I was teaching at the Forest Refuge Center next door here in May, the month of May, and one of the people who was on retreat there told me about a practice they had. It was uh, called uh, One Year to Live. Maybe some of you have heard of it. I think maybe it's based on a book by Stephen Levine. He has a book of that same title. I don't really know that much about it, but I'm mentioning it because it's an interesting question to ask oneself, you know, what might I do with my life if I knew that I had only one year to live? How might I, would that change the way I'm living? Would it change what I do with my time? And I've asked myself this question a lot over the years. It's come up for me. I've never taken it on as a formal practice of deciding I would live a year that way so much, although sometimes it's turned out that way by accident, maybe. And sometimes I've, I've even wished it were really true that I knew it was true because I had this feeling it would really put things in perspective. And sometimes when I've thought about this, I would say, well, I wouldn't change that much of what I'm doing now. But other times, I really have to look at what I'm doing. I'm spending my time, and it can be humbling and very sobering. You know, I'll turn around, another year has gone by. And I have the feeling soon enough a lifetime will go by. There's a simple statement that, that you find a lot in the Buddhist teaching. It goes to the heart of things, really. And it's just one line. That which is subject to arising is subject to passing away. And the insight into this is, is profound and deep. We find it throughout the teachings. And it's not just a philosophical statement. You know, we all might agree to it as a, as a thought, as an idea. We might see the truth in it in that way, but it's something that we need to investigate directly in our experience. That's what the teachings are about. And so often we live as though we have all the time in the world. If we really connect with the truth of our mortality, 
It brings us face to face with this core teaching of the Buddha, this truth of impermanence and of change. And the woods around here are a really great place to investigate this, this teaching. You know, the trees in the woods can teach us everything about this if we take the time to look and let it in. Trees are born due to certain kinds of conditions and causes. They live and die according to natural processes, unfolding of natural processes, and according to the laws of nature, you could say. So if a seed falls to the earth in the right place and the conditions are, are good and right for it, then that seed will sprout and, and a seedling will come up. And if it doesn't get eaten by a deer or gets enough rain and sun, then it will become a baby tree and then over time a sapling and eventually a mature tall tree. And if we walk in the woods, we'll see trees in all these stages of life. They're all, it's all there seedlings and little trees and saplings and big adult trees. And then we'll see old trees that are losing their vitality and maybe only have one or two branches still alive. And we'll see trees that are dead and have already fallen and they're starting to, to turn back into soil and new trees sprouting right out of them. And this is the way of nature. We don't make a problem of it out there. It's so beautiful. It's so good and right. If we take the time to even notice, maybe we don't notice they're just trees. But the teachings are all right there, right there unfolding for us very directly. And if we bring our awareness and our understanding to bear, we'll see that our own birth and life is no different than that of a tree. Our bodies are born and exist because of causes and conditions that come together. And we live dependent on nourishment, the same as a tree does. We take food and our bodies grow and they're sustained by nourishment that we take. And they're constantly changing. You know, our hair grows and falls out and our skin and nails change that way, like leaves on a tree. I think I read somewhere that, that the <coughs> The people who study these kinds of things say that with the cells dying and being replaced, we get a whole new body. It takes about seven years to get a new one. I guess that slows down as we get older. I'm on the 12-year plan. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but it's kind of amazing. You know, who are we if we get replaced every seven years? You know, we think we're the same person. Nothing is left after seven years of who we thought we were, or 12 in my case. 15 for some of us. <laughs> <laughs>
But when we come to ourselves in our, our own lives, then it doesn't feel so right, you know. Maybe we feel like, well, it shouldn't be happening, these changes and stages. And we fight and struggle with it. We don't want to see that we're the same as all of nature in this way. This is a quotation from Ajahn Chah, who's a, a great Thai forest monk, for those of you who don't know his name. Trees, mountains, and vines all live according to their own truth. They appear and die following their nature, and they remain impassive. But not we people. We make a fuss over everything. Yet the body just follows its own nature. It's born, grows old, and eventually dies. It follows nature in this way. Whoever wishes it to be otherwise will just suffer. So we're born and everything changes and we live and eventually we'll die as, our, as the conditions of life flow and change. But we try to avoid seeing it. You know, and if we look at our culture, there's this glorification of youth and youthfulness. And youth is put on a pedestal, at least in the media and advertising. It's as though we're not supposed to get old, as though aging is evidence of personal failure or bad taste. You know, if we get old, it's because we have really bad taste. And if we had good taste, we wouldn't do it. As though we had some choice. You know, all of the creams and lotions and potions, you know, that promise us youth forever as though we, we don't have to get old. And, you know, it might help a bit. It's not that we wouldn't use things to help us feel good and stay healthy. That's not the point. But it doesn't actually keep us from aging. And it's not to say that we shouldn't take care of ourselves either, you know. It makes sense to try to stay as healthy as possible and to exercise and eat well and all of those good things. And good health is, is a great blessing and anyone who's had trouble with their health knows that really well. But to live as though aging is somehow avoidable or, or optional shows an impressive capacity for denial, which is a skill that many of us have definitely developed to some degree, some of us to a very high degree. And living with the truth of our aging puts us in touch with, directly with the tr truth of impermanence. And uh, you know, we might be fine to go contemplate it in the woods, but not so easy to do when it comes to ourselves. We don't like to see it happening. You know, we look in the mirror and we see our hair getting gray or in my case, I have this expanding forehead problem as my hairline recedes. I'd like to say it was wisdom, but I think it's just hair loss. <laughs> but sometimes we deny it. I, my hair's getting thin and back. Might have noticed when I bow. But for the longest time, I'd catch a glimpse of it, you know, at the barber shop, and I'd say, oh, it's just a cowlick. You know, it's, it's always been that way. <laughs> I pursued that line for quite a while. <laughs> I remember, this is a long time ago, but first, you know, having people call me sir in the, sh in the store or the restaurant. I have a friend who, a roommate of mine, this is a long time ago, but she, I remember she came in once on her bike and she said, oh, I just got mammed. You know, she'd been in a restaurant or some at the store and someone had called her ma'am. She called it getting mammed. She didn't, didn't like it. <laughs> Maybe some of you have started to get mammed once in a while. I mean, recently, someone offered to help me out with my groceries. <laughs> now, <laughs> it, it may be that they just offer that to everyone, but no, thank you. I'm just fine. <laughs> like, you know, can't quite go that far yet. <laughs> you know, 
these things happen and we notice our self-image is suffering. <laughs> and I try to take care of myself, you know, I, I exercise and when, I'm, when I have it near me, I ride my bike a lot, I love to ride my bike and I, I kind of watch my diet pretty well. And, you know, I've decided I'm okay with being middle-aged as long as I get to be a youthful middle-aged person. <laughs> You know, so there's the self-image thing. But these images, these self-images are inherently problematic, aren't they? You know, we use them to feel good about ourselves, to feel more secure in some way. But they take a lot of maintenance. We have to constantly shore them up. We might find ourselves spending a lot of time or, or even a lot of money trying to keep them intact. And then something happens and they get shaken or really knocked down. You know, someone calls us sir or ma'am or offers us their seat on the bus, that happened too. That's usually me offering. And so then our self-image is out of date. And the usual strategy is to adjust it a bit, you know, like me deciding I'm okay with being middle-aged. But the point is not to get good at adjusting our self-image that way. You know, our practice is about going beyond all images, all the ways that we think about ourselves. A practice about connecting with the truth of things right now in the moment. So we drop below concepts about the world and our, our ideas about life, about all we think we know, all of these self-images and the ways that we might limit ourselves by what we believe to be true. And we begin letting go of relating to life in terms of having experiences. That's how the practice starts to unfold. We let go of relating to things in terms of having experiences and settle more into a relationship of being. And this is a subtle but very radical shift that starts to happen in our practice. It's quite profound. It seems small. And we start to see this shift very directly. You can see it in our moment-to-moment -moment experience. It's the difference between having my thoughts, my emotions, my sensations, my body, and how it manifests, and settling more into an awareness of the flow of changing phenomena, of shifting, shifting elements, and the play of the elements, and the whole range of mental activities thoughts and emotions. And in the one case, our experience is something that we're identified with as I, as mine, as something that's happening to me. And in the other, we're simply become, we are the process itself. And so then in that case, there's no one having the experience in that way, no one to whom it's happening. So it's the shift from a mode of having to a mode of being and it's simple, it seems so simple, but it's very profound. It makes all the difference in the world and, and it really opens the door to the practice. And when we make this kind of shift and settle more into this flow of change, and if we slowly stop resisting it, or stop trying to hold on to it, we see how this flow of change happens in our bodies and minds, you know, there's just this continual flux and change. You know, how many births and lives and deaths do we experience just in a single day? We can see it that way, taking birth, passing away moment to moment in the flow of our experience. Just in a single moment, this happens over and over, this arising and ceasing. Most of the time we get caught up in the process, lost in the details of the flow. We get caught in the world of the senses, of sights and sounds, of touch and all of that, through all the sense doors. And especially we get caught in the world of thoughts and emotions. All that we think and feel about our experience and life. And we attribute a solidity and a reality to it that it actually doesn't have. 
we make it solid and real, and then we try to hold on to it, but it just keeps slipping away. It's like trying to hold on to a, a moving river, to a stream. You know, we can try holding on to that, but it just slips through our fingers. And if we look closely, we'll see what the river doesn't actually exist. It's just the flow. There's nothing there we can really hold on to. Sometimes it's more like trying to hold on to a, a rope that's slipping away. If we try to hold on to a rope that's slipping away, we get rope burn. It hurts and we wonder why. But if we're getting rope burn, the only solution is to let go. This is from a Thai teacher, woman, uh, who lived in the last century, who was um, very highly regarded teacher in Thailand, named Upasaka Ki Nanayan. It's from a book of hers called Pure and Simple. If you look into the rippling current of your experience, you'll find that there's actually nothing you can hold on to as having any real essence. Everything disbands and disappears. New fabrications arise and pass away, arise and pass away. They keep on flowing and they seem to involve many issues. But actually there aren't so many issues. There's only this arising, remaining and passing away. It's because we're so focused on not seeing this that there seem to be so many issues. But actually there's only just this, arising, remaining and passing away like a rippling current of water where the rippling isn't a thing at all. If you learn to see skillfully in this way, you'll see that all things arise, remain, and pass away. The past has passed away, and the future hasn't yet come. Look simply at the present, arising and passing away right before your eyes, and don't hold on. When you see arising, remaining, and passing away, pure and simple, right in the present moment, and then let go, that's when you gain release. I see all of this, this connection with the truth of impermanence. It, for me, it relates to the idea of taking refuge. You know, when we try to hold on to this flow, try to hold on to the river, we're taking refuge in something that's inherently unstable and unreliable. And I think of taking refuge as placing one's heart upon something, placing our heart there in a place of safety. And you could say that if we're trying to hold on to this flow, we're placing our hearts upon that which is by its very nature is not reliable, is not a real place of safety. And it's a setup for suffering. And often when we, when we suffer, then we, we blame the world. We start pointing our fingers around to try to place the blame here, here or there in the world. But the world isn't to blame when we suffer in that way. It's just doing its own thing. It's just unfolding lawfully according to nature. It's just that we've taken refuge in the wrong thing. And it's really worth looking at this for ourselves. You know, what do we take refuge in as we go through the days in an ongoing way? And where do we place our trust? Where do we, what do we place our hearts on? When I come into the hall, I bow three times to this Buddha statue, all of the teachers seem to be doing that, and others in the hall do this bowing. Some of you are probably wondering what's up with that, you know, what's going on. Maybe think we're expecting you to start bowing, expecting you to become a Buddhist, whatever that might be. And what, what is it that one might bow to? You know, it's not this sculpture back here that's just a bronze casting. I used to make sculptures and do castings for a living. There's no 
real intrinsic value in that bronze casting beyond the value of the metal, you could say. But when we bow, we bow to what it symbolizes. And that might seem like a very obvious point. You know, it's a symbol. We all know that it's just a symbol. But it's worth looking into that a little more deeply. What is it symbolizing? So for me, when I bow, I'm bowing to this, what's called the triple gem. And I spoke about this on the opening night, this refuge in Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha, what that might mean. This refuge in wisdom and wakefulness and this potential for realization, this potential for freedom. We can bow to that. And we can bow to the truth of the way things are right now. We can always know that. It doesn't matter what's going on. It doesn't matter that everything's constantly changing. We can always know the truth of the way it is. And we can bow to the refuge of the community of those who walk the path with us and those who've gone before and walked it to completion and show, show us the way. And we can bow to our own highest aspiration, our own potential. This is always available. And they don't reside in this, in this statue. These refuges are in our own hearts and minds. And so these refuges can go with us no matter what's going on. They're always available. They're in the heart. So this might be a key to how we could find a path with heart. Is this idea of refuge, a real refuge. And then we see that it's not so much that the heart is in the path, but it's in our relationship to the path. And then we see that the question is not so much what we do, not what kind of path that we would take. It's not so much a question of finding a path with heart as finding our own heart, no matter what path we might be on at any time. Finding a path with heart reflects a kind of internal shift as far in terms of our relationship with life, where we find a place of refuge that goes with us everywhere, no matter what's happening, and no matter what path we might choose to walk on. This is another quotation from Ajahn Chah. I think this is kind of an Ajahn Chah talk. All the woodsy stuff is... He likes those kinds of images. He said, you will reach a point where the heart tells itself what to do. I'm gonna read that again. That's a good one. You will reach a point where the heart tells itself what to do. Try to be mindful and let things take their natural course. Then your mind will become still in any surroundings like a clear forest pool. All kinds of wonderful, rare animals will come to drink at the pool, and you will clearly see the nature of all things. You will see many strange and wonderful things come and go, but you will be still. This is the happiness of the Buddha. The Buddha taught us to lay down those things that lack a real abiding essence. If you lay everything down, you will see the truth. If you don't, you won't, and that's the way it is. When wisdom awakens within you, you will see truth wherever you look. Truth is all you'll see. So I started this evening with swallows and I'm gonna end with wild geese. This is a poem by Mary, another poem by Mary Oliver called wild geese. You do not have to be good. You do not have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the, through the desert repenting. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. Tell me about despair, yours, and I will tell you mine. Meanwhile, the world goes on. 
Meanwhile, the sun and the clear pebbles of the rain are moving across the landscapes, over the prairies and the deep trees, the mountains and the rivers. Meanwhile, the wild geese high in the clean blue air are heading home again. Whoever you are, no matter how lonely, the world offers itself to your imagination, calls to you like the wild geese, harsh and exciting, over and over announcing your place in the family of things. So we'll take a few quiet moments and let these words drift away. And then I'll, I'll ring the bell. Thank you for your kind attention this evening. Um, there's time now for some walking and then the metta chanting at 9 p.m. So please come if you have the energy. It's a lovely uh, thing to do to end the day. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.